Good morning, church. So, for me, this is the second time round because there was an earlier service here today. Um, so, I need to kind of warm myself up a little bit. <clears throat> but uh, before and as I do that, um, because this is the second service, uh, there are one or two things that uh, the Holy Spirit is leading that are slightly different from the first service. First of all, uh, God has put it in my heart to... Uh, share a word really with our musicians who are just as I'm sharing it are vanishing. <laughs> Others are sitting here. Um, and the reason why uh, what I want to share is because uh, first of all uh, I want to say to you musicians and worship leaders we appreciate you. That's true for the other guys who ran away <laughs> as soon as I started talking. <laughs> So you can tell them, we appreciate them. Ah, welcome back, great. So we really want to say to you, we appreciate you. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has uh, put on, on my heart really to share something with you this morning, specifically for the musicians. It's an experience I had um, probably about 10 years ago now. I was teaching as a professor in Old Testament at the Queen's Foundation in Birmingham. And that's a seminary that is actually quite well known for its radical theology. So they believe all sorts of things that other Christians don't believe. <laughs> so they're quite wild in that regard. And um, in some circles, they're a bit frowned upon because people say, oh, uh, they, they don't believe in the Bible as much as we do and all that sort of stuff. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit is there and God is there. Um, and one particular occasion, and this is why I want to share this with you musicians, on one particular occasion, uh, we were in worship, we were singing, we heard the word and everything else. The service was finished uh, in chapel, and everybody went about their business. But the, um, the pianist, the keyboard player, continued as people were leaving the chapel, he continued to play. And he played such a beautiful tune, I just felt moved to sit in my chair and just remain there and listen to the music. And, as I, and I don't know what, what that was, but I just felt I wanted to stay there and, and listen to this. And uh, after a few minutes, it was just him and me on our own in that big chapel. And he continued to play. I think he was practicing something. And he was a beautiful uh, musician, player. was excellent. But as I was listening, I closed my eyes and, and I started praying. And suddenly, uh, I had this immense sense of joy, of playful joy and happiness well inside of me. It's almost like, you know, when, when, when Christmas is about to start and you get your presents. It was that sort of joy. And uh, I thought, wow, what is going on? And I suddenly became of a presence, I became aware of a presence to the left above me. And I had my eyes closed, but it was like I saw something move to the left above me. And I looked up, and I kid you not, um, where the rafters of the chapel started, it's like where, where the walls ended and, and the roof started, it was as if there was a glass ceiling and on that glass ceiling, there were some angels dancing in a formation dance. I didn't see the whole thing of them, but they were barefoot. They had white robes, the big feet, mind you. Um, 
And, and they were clearly dancing in a procession dance, in a formation dance, to the music that our musician was playing. And, and it was just amazing because the, the joy that I felt was the joy of these angels in heaven. They really appreciated that music that was going on there. And there was nothing else but this musician and the angels. And I had the privilege of being a witness to this. And so I want to say to you, whenever you play, when you practice, after worship, when, when you just continue to practice a little bit or play for people as they move out, you're not just playing for people. You're playing for the Lord. There are angels in heaven listening in on your music. There is joy in heaven over your ministry. So God bless you and continue to use you. Thank you. <clears throat> the second thing I wanted to share with you, um, thank you, Pastor Felix, for introducing my wife as well. Um, uh, often people say, oh, my wife is my better half. Well, in my case, this is definitely true. <laughs> but I just wanted to also share with you all, um, in the early 2000s, when my wife and I, we were both co-pastoring a church in London, um, uh, God put it in my heart to pray my own version of the so-called Jabez prayer, which some of you may have heard about. Uh, and uh, the prayer that I started praying, and I continue to pray this ever since, uh, I think it was the summer of 2003 until today, I pray this every day, and the prayer was this, O Lord, enlarge our horizons, broaden our vision, increase our sphere of influence, and open doors of opportunity that no one may shut. And by God, has he answered that prayer. So now we have a ministry over three continents, a ministry in the United Kingdom. My wife is a bishop, uh, the, the senior uh, clergy in the Methodist Church in West Africa. She's the first uh, African woman bishop in Africa. Um, and God has now most recently called us to be here in, in the United States. So uh, I share this with you because little did I know when I started praying like this, how God would answer. And so I want to share with you on the basis of my own experience, if you want to surrender all to God, as we have sung just a few minutes ago, God appreciates what you offer him and he can do something very special with you and through you. Not only through you individually, but also through us as a church, this congregation, but also the worldwide Church of Christ, which is a fantastic body of people who want to follow God. And I, hopefully I have time enough at the end of my sermon. I haven't even started the sermon yet, by the way, in case you haven't noticed yet. Um, but uh, now I just want us to briefly pray, and then I will start with the sermon proper. Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you so, so much for the privilege of being in your presence to worship you here this morning and to receive from you revelation from your word that will change our lives. Oh, Holy Spirit, may you move in everything we say and hear here today. May you transform our lives not only in our emotional makeup, in the moment of the experience, 
but uh, may you change our lives for good and forever. Amen. So the topic of our uh, exploration of God's Word this morning is this. The Old Testament is good news for you today. The Old Testament is good news for you today. And when I say you, I mean every one of us here in this room and everybody who is uh, joining us in worship this morning online. But also it includes all of us together. The Old Testament is good news for us as Christians today. And the rest of the sermon will really be a series of mini-sermons going through the Word of God, helping us just see how much the Old Testament is good news for us today. Um, let's just reflect a little bit on what we mean when we say the Old Testament. And what I do is I'm just going through uh, the Bible until the end of the Old Testament, which is here. So you can see it, everything on my left, on your right here, that's the Old Testament. Then we have, in my Bible at least, many other Bibles don't have that, uh, we have intertestamental uh, uh, literature, the so-called Apocrypha, and as I go to the end of those, that's this bit here in the middle. And so in our Bibles... The New Testament is this. Can you just see how much bigger the Old Testament is than the New Testament? Can I hear an amen? Very good. You're beginning to wake up, which is great. I know, I know actually you are well awake because the music and the worship has really prepared us to, to be in God's presence. But come with me on this journey now as we explore what it means that the Old Testament is good news for us today. The Old Testament matters just by size alone. The Old Testament is three quarters of the Christian Bible. So much so that the New Testament, if you think about it, that tiny little bit at the end is almost like the appendix. And I sometimes joke with my New Testament professor colleagues at, at Denver Seminary, and I say to them, you know, you guys, you are just interested in the appendix of the Bible. And then they, they, they try to come back at me and say, yeah, but it's the most important bit of the Bible, much more important than the Old Testament. I say, you suffer from spiritual appendicitis. <laughs> because you overblow the appendix. It's too big. But of course, when we joke like this, there's a serious matter behind this. And that is, in the Christian church for centuries, um, we have believed as the church that somehow the New Testament, because the New Testament reveals in a unique way Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that the New Testament is more important for Christians than the Old Testament. And there is some truth in that. But nonetheless, the Old Testament continues to be truly important, not just by size, but also by content. 
And so what I want to suggest to you now is, first of all, this is my first point in my sermon, as I try to help us see how the Old Testament is good news for us today, that the Old Testament is actually, if we really think about it historically and sociologically and theologically, the Old Testament is the new, new testament. The Old Testament is the new, new testament. And what I mean by that, let me explain it to you, and I better get that hold of that microphone now because I'm actually getting really excited. Uh, why is the Old Testament the new, new testament? Because it's immensely good news for Christians today worldwide and here in the United States as well. And the reason for that is because if you think about it, the New Testament, when it was written, it was written by people who either knew Jesus firsthand or by people who knew someone who knew Jesus. The New Testament was written in roughly a period of about 70 to maximum 100 years. First generation Christians were, were writing it. And as they were writing, many of them were actually standing there when Jesus said, there are some people standing here who will still be alive when I return. So the early Christians, all of them, including those who wrote our New Testament, they were expecting Jesus to return in their lifetime or in the lifetime of their children at the very latest. And of course, that shapes your theology, that shapes your, your priorities, that shapes your life expectancy. What do I want to do now as a disciple of Christ as I write a, a letter to the churches in Corinth or Colossae or as I write a, 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 a gospel for my local church so that everybody will know more about Jesus? What is important when I can expect and anticipate eagerly that Jesus will return tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or in a decade or two at the very latest. All that matters is prepare people to go to heaven. Because all the problems of this world, we don't need to deal with them because Jesus will come back and sort them all out. But Jesus has not come back for almost 2,000 years. It's been a while. <laughs> now, I don't know what Jesus was thinking when he, said, when he said that. I don't know what the people were thinking when they heard him say what he said. But here we are now. Now, compare this now with the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written over a period of 1,000 years by a whole people. It's 39 books, much, much larger uh, than the New Testament, written over 1,000-year period, reflecting the history of the whole people of God, of Israel, with their God. This Old Testament was written through time, the ups and downs of the people of God, a people who found their identity in slavery. They became the people of Israel in Egypt under immense 
economic and social oppression, under infanticide, in insufferable pain and injustice. They struggled through centuries surrounded by enemy nations, surrounded by people of other faiths who saw them as the big enemy, who wanted to attack them and try to persuade them to take on their gods. They suffered military defeat and forced emigration. Um, they went into exile for 70 years. And it is precisely in these periods of pain and suffering and injustice that they were writing the books that we now call the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a book that was written with the blood and the tears of the people of God. And it was written by people who, no matter what was going on in their lives, they held on faithfully to God. It was in the worst pain and suffering that most of those books were written. And so I want to say to us here today, as Christians across the world, wherever you are, whether it's here in the United States, in Denver, or elsewhere in the so-called Christian world, or in the other parts of the world where Christianity is a minority religion. The Old Testament was written for a time like this. It was written for us as we are in exile, as we are in slavery, as we are suffering for our faith, whether it's persecution or ridicule or whatever it is, the Old Testament is good news for you and me today. Secondly, why is the Old Testament good news for us today? Secondly, I want to say something a little bit about the history of how Christians have engaged the Old Testament. 200 years ago or so, a famous German theologian called Martin Kehler wrote a book about biblical theology, and in it he made a clear distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he described how the Old Testament is, he thought, foreign to Christians today. And to illustrate that, he used a metaphor, an illustration, and he said, there is a big and nasty ditch between us and the Old Testament. And it's almost impossible to cross over and for us to understand the Old Testament because it is so foreign to us. There are other famous Christian theologians um, who said other things about the Old Testament. They were highly critical. Marcion, in, in, in the early centuries of the Christian faith, he said that the Old Testament is the, the, the book of a God of wrath, of a, of a bloodthirsty God that has nothing to do with the God of love that we find in the New Testament. And so, if, uh, I guess if Keller was living today, he would say, there is a bayou between them, the, the Old Testament and us, and there are gators in there. We can't possibly go across 
uh, we stay safely on the New Testament side. I want to take that head on as we look at the Word of God together. Is it really true that the God of the Old Testament is a bloodthirsty God full of wrath? And I want us to turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 34, 32 and 34. In chapter 32, just a few weeks after the Israelites had been rescued from Egypt through all sorts of miracles, they find themselves with Moses, their leader, up on the mountain conversing with God, writing down various kinds of laws. And the Israelites are left over on their own with Aaron, their new high priest. And they got restless and they decided to make a golden calf, an image, an idol of God, in order to revive their spirituality, so to speak. Now, God had just told them earlier in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make idols of me, no images of me. And so when they did that, of course, for God, this was the ultimate insult. The ultimate insult. And you would, have expect that God would, you would have expected that God would get really, really angry. And God did get really, really angry. And he got really, really bloodthirsty, or so we think. Because he goes, God goes and tells Moses, oh, by the way, Moses, I'm going to destroy this whole people and make you my new nation of Israel instead. Moses said, don't do that doesn't look good on the news, not good public relations. But do you notice that God didn't just get the big hammer and smashed everybody? God first told Moses that he was going to do that. Why did God not know that Moses was going to twist his arm and make him change his mind? Of course God knew that. But God had just been insulted to his face in the most atrocious way. God was fed up. And also, of course, the public relations disaster thing cuts both ways. If he kills his people, everybody will say, oh, this God is no good. If you follow him and you do one thing wrong, he's going to smash you. But on the other hand, if you think about it, he gives you a command, first command, don't make idols of me, don't worship other gods. First thing they do is, make idols of me, worship other gods, golden calf. What? What? So I think what God was doing there is God was pretending to be hard to get. He was showing that he takes this kind of sin seriously, hoping, knowing that Moses would stand in the breach for the people and intercede for them. And so God is easily persuaded. Oh, all right then, Moses. I'll forgive them. But do you notice, Moses, and this, this is not just serious, but it's also funny in its seriousness. Because Moses is saying, well, I'm not so sure about you, God. Do you really mean it? I want to see you face to face. I want you to promise me that you don't kill them. And God again said, well, you know, maybe. So eventually God agrees. And this is where we get to chapter 34. 
And I just want to read this to you. I want to let the Word of God itself tell the story. So let me just read this to you. Um, so the Lord ag agrees to meet with Moses to confirm that he would not kill the people. And he says, beginning of chapter 34, he says to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones. Verse 2, be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain. And do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So what we get is, this is a very holy moment. Nobody else is allowed. It's just Moses, the intercessor, who stands in the breach for the people and God himself. And uh, Moses goes up there in the morning. And verse 5, it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Yeah, yeah. Now watch this. I'm just trying and imagine this. Try and picture it, what that looks like. See yourself as little Moses on the mountain. God's standing beside you, right? It's very early. Yeah. Dust, uh, not dust, fog, mist, and all that. It's a bit chilly. And the Lord stood there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. Now watch this. While the Lord stands next to Moses on the one hand, the Lord also passes before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. Do you see what's happening? This God of wrath is a God of mercy, a God kind and patient and forgiving. And this very phrase, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, you know what? That becomes a refrain throughout the entire Old Testament. Again and again and again and again, when the people of God reflect on who their God is, they repeat this word of self-revelation in the face of God's response to the ultimate insult. He had just saved his people and they smash it back in his face. He pretends to be angry and he is angry. But not angry to the point of killing them. He wants to forgive them. But he needs to also show that he takes sin seriously. What an amazing, what an amazing God this God of the Old Testament is. Hallelujah. Secondly, and this is something, I've been a professor of Old Testament for a very long time, but it's not until about a year ago, actually, as I started teaching at Denver Seminary, I came to realize something that I had not seen before. And it's this. Yeah, God does get angry sometimes in the Old Testament, and by the way, a few times in the New Testament too. But guess what God gets angry about? What does God get angry about? And when you go through the Old Testament, and I challenge you and I invite you to do this, go through the Old Testament and watch out for when does God get angry? What does God get angry about? 
And we typically think that God gets angry about your and my little sins, our daily sins. Oh, I've done this, or I have not done that, and is this, that, or the other. And God is immortally offended and angry with us and ready to burn us in hell because we've stolen $10 from our mother's purse when we were five years old. Isn't it? That's what we often think. I can see a few people nodding. Some people nodding a bit. <laughs> the $10, that was you, right? <laughs> I did it too, by the way. Um, when we actually go through the Old Testament, what we find is that with very few exceptions, I would think 98% of all occurrences where God is angry, He is only angry about two things. Only angry about two things. The first one is idolatry, the thing we just talked about. The second thing is social injustice. When the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner get mistreated, get taken advantage of, get neglected, uh, get harmed willfully, that's when God gets angry. What an amazing God we have. This God gets angry about the, real, for the right things, I think. Let me tell you a little story. This happened about five or six years ago. And uh, uh, it was the end of the semester. Uh, the faculty, we actually were celebrating. We went out for, to a restaurant to have a meal together. And one of my colleagues, uh, he was um, uh, uh, one of the highest Methodists in the United Kingdom. I won't say who he was, but he was fairly high up in the hierarchy. And a uh, New Testament scholar. And we were walking along towards the restaurant and had a nice, pleasant conversation. And he said, oh, so Knut, what are you working on these days in your research? And I said, oh, I'm working on um, statements in the Psalms where it says that God answers the psalmist's prayer. And I don't know where this came from, what happened next, but he got upset. And he said to me, oh, well, that's all good and well. But I don't like a God who goes around zapping people like God zapped Ananias and Sapphira. Zapped, you know what I mean? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> okay. That kind of zapped. And as he spoke, the Holy Spirit came upon me and I said the following. Are you ready for this? Better fasten your seatbelt. This. It's not me, that was the Holy Spirit. What I said next is, you know what my problem is? My problem is, God does not zap enough people. <laughs> and I mean, I didn't say that just to, you know, to, to provoke him or anything like that. I didn't think at all it was just the Holy Spirit taking over. But, but as I said that, I theologically, of course, reflected, what did I just say and why did I say that? And I realized one of the problems that we all of us as human beings have to face is that although there is an almighty, all-powerful God in heaven and on earth and under the earth who has everything under his control, and although this God is a good God, yet there is so much suffering and pain and injustice in this world. 
why does God not intervene much more often than he does? And that brings me to another part of the Old Testament, another part of why I want to say to you this morning that the Old Testament is good news for you. And it is this, that in the Old Testament, people have been wrestling with this theological issue on a much, much deeper level than in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when you suffer injustice, you're not so worried about it. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, all the sufferings of this world are not worthy in comparison to the great glories and riches that are about to be revealed to us in the heavenly places. Well, if you think Jesus comes back tomorrow, takes you straight to heaven, you can deal with injustice, right? But what about a people who have been suffering for centuries? What about whole swaths of this globe that have been exploited for centuries? What about people who have been in a situation of domestic abuse, have been in a marriage uh, captured and captivated, don't know what to do, afraid for their lives, afraid for their children? What about them? And what we see in the Old Testament time and again, time and again, time and again, God intervenes on their behalf. He creates an exodus for his people. He creates an exodus for individuals. I want to say to you this morning, the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament, and he's faithful to you now and here today. And if you are in a situation of suffering, of pain, of um, being at the receiving end of social injustice, of exploitation, of forced labor, of sexual abuse, whatever it may be, this God of the Old Testament is angry about what is happening to you. This God is taking your side. This God is the God of the victims, not of the perpetrators. And maybe these people are not going to get zapped just yet. But this God who is angry about social injustice, this God is angry about the people who hurt you, the people who exploit you, the people who make you feel inferior and make you feel bad about yourself. This God loves you. And he is angry with the person who is mistreating you. Yeah. The God of the Bible, and this is what the Old Testament teaches us, He's a God who is angry. But when we think about it, He's angry about the right kind of stuff, isn't He? What a God. What a God. The next thing I want to say why God is, why the Old Testament is the new, New Testament, is because I want us to reflect a little bit about uh, the law. And the law is not just something to make us feel guilty, but is something that helps us to aim higher in our lives. In 
the New Testament, we have learned much about God's grace. And we said, uh, and Paul tells us this, if we believe in Jesus and ask for forgiveness for our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And hallelujah for that. But in the Old Testament, what we learn is that God also wants us to live different lives as believers. He wants us to aim higher than just what gets us into heaven. He wants us to be his children, not just in heaven. He wants us to be his children today. And so as I come to a close, um, and I wish I had another hour or two to share with you. I've only gone through half of my sermon manuscript with you. Um, I want to share with you from Isaiah chapter 55. And uh, there is a beautiful invitation to all of us today, and it is the good news. Chapter 55 in Isaiah, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. And then further on, incline your ear, in verse 3, and come to me. Listen so that you may live. And then in verse 6 following, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the Old Testament God. Then God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. People often use these last few verses to say, oh, so because God's ways are higher than yours and his thoughts are higher than yours, you don't understand anything and you don't have to and you just be quiet. That's not what God is saying here. What God is doing is he has just invited the whole people, everyone, come and seek me because I want to be found by you. And God says, and to the wicked say, I will abundantly pardon. And so, and, and, and what comes next is God is saying, and if you think I am too wicked for the love of God, I am too wicked and sinful for God's grace and mercy. God is saying, if that's what you think about yourself, your ways of thinking about you are not my ways of thinking about you. I love you. I take seriously where you have fallen short. But I love you and I will abundantly pardon you. My love is greater than your love. You may think of yourself as being egoistic and maybe you are. But I am even more egoistic about you. I love you even more than you love yourself. But come to me. Change your life. Get angry about the things I am angry about. Drink from the fountain of life. And receive the power of the Holy Spirit to change profoundly from the inside out. To be on the side of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And so we invite you, 
Give your life to this amazing God again. Recommit yourself. If you are not a Christian yet, you are most welcome to join us as the people of God. But if you are a member of the people of God, I want you to receive the good news of the new New Testament. That the God who wants to transform our lives wants to do something with you and through you. So come, everyone who is thirsty, come and receive the living water of God for free. And let the Holy Spirit enter your life in a new and fresh way that you may be transformed. Come, whoever you are. God's grace and mercy is abundant. It's free. It is for you. Hallelujah.